you want basketball, we got you. What about plays on the turf? We got you covered. Or maybe even a knock right out of the park. We give you our takes on the latest sports news, music, and anything training around the world. You are now in the clutch with Mia and Malik. What's going on, y'all? In the Clutch podcast, back at it again, episode three. And we got something special, Nia. We got something special going on today, don't we? Real special, Malik Brown. We got our first interview, Jared Johnston. Jared, how you doing? Doing pretty good. I didn't, good. Know, I didn't know I was the first guest, so I feel, feel special right now. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You're going you gonna to turn it up for us. You're going to turn it up oh, for yeah. us. Oh, yeah. Definitely. So, Johnston, you were former Bowie State quarterback, your motivational speaker, real estate agent, and what you came to here to talk to us about today was your new book. And it's the Amazon's number one newest release from cleats to loafers and everything in between. Yep. But I guess before we get into the book and everything, I guess just talk about your background and where it all started for you. Yeah, so for me, I am from Woodbridge, Virginia. <laughs> if you guys are familiar with that area, it's about 30 to 45 minutes south of Washington, D.C., so I guess what they consider the DMV, depending on who you're asking. But I grew up in Woodbridge, Virginia with my brother and my mother and my grandmother starting off. And then um, my stepfather came into the picture, you know, a few years later as I was near middle school. So in the beginning, it was, you know, just us. Um, you know, my mother was somebody who was very a strong single mother, so it didn't feel like you had a single mother, you know, if anyone out yeah. there can relate. And my father, he lived in New York, because that's where my family's originally from. So my mother put my brother and I in sports from the beginning. From the age of six years old, I started playing basketball, and then I started playing football after that. So football was kind of second, my second love in the beginning. Um, but from there... I, you know, had challenges in middle school, and that's kind of what, that's kind of how I drew a little closer to football, because I had went through some bullying and things like that, and football gave me that identity. It was a place of peace, you know, a place of refuge that I can go to, and it was something that allowed me to, you know, have a uh, equal playing field with my other peers, and it gave me an upper hand, you know, if you could tease me or mess with me in school once we get on the field or on the court. You know, that's out the window. So that's when I really started to gravitate towards football. And then from there, went in high school. Um, didn't have the high school career most people would want. I only played one full season. Well, not even a full season. I only played nine games in high school. So from there, I took the junior college route. Uh, went to New Mexico Military Institute. And that is in Roswell, New Mexico. It's in the middle of nowhere. Um, very, very strict rules with the military. They said that's where aliens landed and all that stuff. So. <laughs> it was weird to say the least, but from there, the, the school didn't work out. Um, just the, the way they ran it, they had middle school kids telling us, you know, to do 100 push-ups and things like that. So I said, you know what, I'm going to leave here. And I went to ASA College in Brooklyn, New York, and that's where I um, got the starting spot. And then from there, I had a scholarship offer to Bowie State. Um, I had a few D1 AA's. Um, Norfolk State was offering me Mississippi Valley State. 
they offered me the day I actually um, got my paperwork to leave ASA. And the reason I left and didn't wait for other D1s is because there was no meal plan or anything at my JUCO. So I was ready to just get out of there and play football and just go on from there. So I went to Bowie State. Um, like you said, and I got the jersey on, if you can see it behind me. That's my jersey on. So I got the frame, yeah. So I went to Bowie. It was a good experience. Um, as a kid, and I know uh, you guys may be able to may relate, you know, with the HBCU, it's nothing I heard about when I was growing up. I never even heard about Bowie in this 45 minutes from me until I was in junior college. And so going into it, I really wasn't too happy about going to HBCU, to be honest. I thought that, you know, it's not real football. I thought it's not real, real talent, real athletes. And when I got there, I was, you know, kind of, I was, I was proved wrong. And it was a place where they do take football serious. And one thing I wish I did when I was at the HBCU, Bowie State, is I wish I got to know my professors or the faculty on the campus more because I feel that at HBCU, it's a little smaller community. Of course, it's your own people, so they may care a little bit more versus a PWI about you and your future. So I wish I took a little more advantage of that, you know, in creating leverage with those faculty and staff and things like that. But overall, it was a great experience. Um, and from there, didn't have any NFL shot, which I wanted, which every kid wants, you know, whatever sport they're playing. And, you know, I felt that I should have had at least a CFL, you know, look or something like that. But me and my head coach really didn't get along too well. We saw things from different perspectives. Um, just the way the team was ran, I wasn't really a fan of, you know, weightlifting. Some guys not going to weightlifting and they're starting on Saturday. So, and I'm the type to voice my opinion, especially being a quarterback as well. So, you know, that didn't happen. So I went down to Georgia and I actually started training for, to get on with the AFL team, a CFL team or whatever, and ended up in the professional indoor football league, which is a step below the AFL. And I got there, ended up getting cut like the second game of the season. Um, but I thought I was doing good. I was, um, I made the, the lineup first game of the season and there was guys from like the New York Jets there, guys that was five-star athletes out of high school. So, you know, I was, you know, up there with the competition and they told me they had to cut me because they needed room for office alignment. So from there, I went to another team in the same league and ended up tearing my PCL the first game of the season. And then it just, I did, I did rehab and it never healed. It took me a few months where I could even run or jump, you know, like I regularly can. So from there, I just decided to hang up the cleats and it wasn't the easiest transition. It was very difficult because you come from the age of six to 23, you know, playing one sport and believing that you're gonna make your dream a reality and be able to do all the things you wanna do for yourself, for your family and things like that. And when it doesn't happen, it's kind of like you hit a dead end. Um, you have to find yourself all over again. You really have to transition. And one of the reasons I wanted to write the book and I felt inclined to write it is because I feel there's a lot of athletes that go through that transition phase and they don't know what to do or aren't prepared, you know, the right way. So then it let me hear a little bit. Okay. Wow. <laughs> That's dope. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I can, uh, I can relate to you definitely 100% um, because, you know, I went the JUCO route. I went to okay. Division One. I. I hooped at HBCU. And yeah. so, you know, a lot of people don't understand or really know just as athletes mm -hmm. how hard it is because you train, you work so hard, yeah. and 
you don't make it professionally. Mm-hmm. And it's like my whole life has been dedicated to this and right. my whole life has been controlled around this sport, you know, going to college and being on a strict schedule. And then you got to go to practice. You got mm-hmm. film. You got to make sure you keep your grades up. So it's so much. And then it's like you kind of move on. Yeah. And now this sport is no longer, you're, you're physically no longer playing mm-hmm. it. Right. And right. so what I've noticed, um, not too many athletes, former collegiate athletes have a good turnaround if they don't play professionally, unfortunately. And then you have your group that does. Um, but it's hard because you, you do try and find your identity. You try and find who you are. What is your talents? What else can you do other than play this sport? Um, so if nobody understands you, I do. Right. Yeah, I appreciate that. But it is something that I think is it, it needs to be spoken about more. I know it's, it is becoming a topic um, with the whole more than the athlete campaign that people are doing. But I feel like and from my personal experiences, uh, one thing that never made sense to me was I played with a guy who went to UCLA. He was a top recruit coming out of high school and he was down in Georgia in the PIFL with me. And one day we were riding around in the car with two other teammates and on the way to go to the mall, we just started making stops and the stops we were making was for him to do, you know, illegal activity and things like that. And the thing that blew my mind was how do you have an athlete that goes to a top 25 institution academically, probably top 10 in academics, and you're surrounded by people who are going to become CEOs of Fortune 500 companies years down the line. You're around the alumni who have businesses that they own. They have so many doors that they can open for you, but a lot of our athletes, they'll go to school and leave an environment that they didn't want to be in, but once they leave school, they go right back to that environment. And for me, it can be a stretch, depending on you asking, depending on your experience, but the way I, the way I see that is sort of like the recidivism rate with prison. You know, if you go into prison, you go there for whatever years you're there, and then you come out, a lot of times you may not learn the necessary skills to survive in society and flourish. And a lot of times I've seen personal experience where guys who, once the season's over, their eligibility is gone, they don't even finish school. And then they go back home, they get into this, that, and the third, because maybe pressures that they have of having Mm -hmm. to provide for a child that they have and things like that. And I think it's something that really needs to be um, taken hold of and you know I just feel like if I could voice my opinion as much as I can you know if it can help one kid then they help somebody else you know I think that's the way to go about go about it and that is a big thing as far as helping other people um with your story as well just like you said uh you said football was basically on your mind like since you yeah. were since you were little on to college that's all. That's what that was your plan A, basically. I know you talked to talk a lot about plan B. Mm-hmm. So as far as plan B, when do you think it's important for these kids and these parents as well to start thinking about, OK, if this doesn't work out for my child or me personally, when when is it time to start thinking, OK, there needs to be another another thing that maybe they can keep up or catch up on? Right, right. That's a good question. Um. Yeah, the plan B, I never had a plan B. Um, my mother, she would ask me a couple times, what's your plan B? Um, after my first serious injury, um, when I broke my ankle in high school, she asked me, and I said, I don't need a plan B. Like, plan, they say a plan B distracts you from a plan A. And right. I believe that, 
but I believe that's true in certain avenues because you look at a football player or NBA player or whatever sport, you have a shelf life and your shelf life may be 30 years old versus somebody who is an engineer. You can do that until you're 80 years old. You know what I'm saying? So I can understand when you say don't have a plan B, but I believe in sports, you definitely should have one. And I say as early as possible um, because you got to think about it. At the age of, say, 10 years old, you may be able to dissect a playbook you know, for the team that you play for. If you got the ability, the mental capacity to dissect the entire playbook and go out on game day, memorize it, you know, in a matter of a second, you should be able to dissect other type of information that you can use, you know, long, you know, way past your playing days. So I think as early as, I would say maybe 10 years old, it depends on the, the child because you also want to, you want your child to have a, a childhood. You don't want them to just, you know, five years old, oh, you're studying, you know, engineering and things like that. What some cultures do, I know, like the Indian culture is very big in that. But yeah. I say if, if they're at the point where they can understand concepts in a sport, they should also be able to understand all types of information. Yeah, that's real. Why do you think that um, a lot of guys kind of fall for that just for plan A and they don't think about long term? Like eventually, like we're all going to stop being athletes, you know, the football is not going to be thrown anymore. You're going to stop dribbling the basketball at one point in your life, whether you make it professional or not. Why is it that us as athletes, we get so comfortable thinking like this is going to be my life? Because I know it's instilled in us saying, oh, football is like basketball is like, but it's so much more than that. So why do you think we get so comfortable with just that idea of plan A? I think it's more so the perception that society puts out there for a lot of people because um, and not even to get into the whole racial divide, but any from any walk of life, you turn the TV on, you see the NBA games, you see the NFL games, front and center, prime time. I mean, they even show them on Sundays when the football season <clears throat> is over, they show them basketball games. So they put sports in front of you, which I don't have any problem with. You know, sports is definitely a tool that you can use to propel you in life if you go about it the right way. But I think it's society forcing that perception on you. And then if we want to break it down to the certain communities, if you talk about the African-American communities, I mean, if you just go back in history, there was never a point where African-Americans were, you know, encouraged to learn anything outside of entertainment. So I think that is kind of generational. And I think now it's starting, the curses, you know, quote unquote curse is starting to be broken because there's social media, there's, you know, internet, a lot of people are finding a whole lot of other endeavors they can get into. But the number one thing I think is just perception mm -hmm. and then also seeing somebody that looks like you doing something other than football or basketball, things like that. Now, I know probably you and Nia can attest to this. Uh, as far as being a student athlete, there's a lot of things that you have to juggle. Like as far as, I mean, you have to play a game one night, and then you may have a test the next day, next morning. Like it's just a lot of things that you have to deal with. So as far as that plan B, thinking of a plan B, how does, and you said it earlier, you said uh, plan A, I mean, your plan B can distract you from your plan A. So how can that, how can you avoid that happening as far as things just getting juggled all at once and being able to actually think about having a backup option if plan A doesn't work? Yeah, um, for me, if I could go back, I would begin to kind of just look into other opportunities, whether just going on Google 
And anything that piques my interest, just Google how to become, if somebody wants to be a chef, how to become a chef. And then from there with like Instagram being so prominent, you can go on Instagram and literally find a chef that's in your area, your region, and send them a DM and say, hey, you know, if you have any time, I would like to, you know, help you with anything that you need, provide value to them. And then from there, you start to get into um, a relationship with that person, a mentorship, and you begin to find out about a whole nother career field. So I think that just, you know, going after anything that piques your interest, research it, and then find a way where you can get involved in it, whether it's going to networking events, um, especially in college. There's, when I was in college, there was a lot of networking events going on that I would hear some people talk about, um, like at a hotel down the street. But, you know, I, I rarely went. I only went once when I tried to get into like a network marketing thing. And I don't know if you guys familiar with network marketing, but I was like, yeah, it's not it or whatever. But I think that and then also doing something that you're really um, passionate about as far as a major when you get into college. Because my major was criminal justice, which I actually it became pretty interesting as I went along um, in the curriculum and things like that. But the reason I went with criminal justice is because from my junior college, that's the only major that transferred all of the credits. So me being tunnel vision thinking football, 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 I was like, yeah. I gotta do criminal justice. I didn't know nothing about it. Never wanted to be in law enforcement at all. So I was just like, all right, going with the flow. And I, Majority of the team, probably 90% of my team in JUCO was criminal justice majors. And everybody went to school and was able to play right away. So I would have maybe looked into something different that really interests me. But also, one of the classes I took within criminal justice was forensics. And that was a class that I really liked. I don't know if you guys ever, you know, watched, I think, NCIS or something like that. But basically yeah. solving murders and things like that. It was something that really interests me. But even then... I was still so focused and tunnel vision on football. I didn't even try to get into an internship. I didn't try to talk to my teacher and find about find out about career paths and things like that. So I think another thing is um interning. And I know with some sports it can be hard because you know I being a starter, especially depending on your position, I couldn't miss a practice you know, one practice a week being a quarterback, I was like, nah, I can't do that. And then I seen some teammates who would try and work. And then if they're working in the off season and they miss a morning workout, okay, next man up, you're not starting anymore. So with that, it comes pressures of thinking, okay, if I'm really focused on my post-athletic career and I really intern and put as much attention to that as I am football, is that going to, you know, threaten my scholarship and things like that? So I think that's something that coaches have to hash out with recruits as they're coming into the school. And I think that can go a long way with helping with the plan B. How can uh, future student athletes come in and they kind of change that? Because there's going to, eventually you're going to have to change some things um, because especially at HBCUs and you know um, that of course maybe a good 1% will make it professionally to the NFL, NBA, WNBA, whatever it is. Um, But how can future student athletes come into being a part of this program and then being at this school, how they can change the narrative and be able to not only focus on that sport, but also focus on their future goals and aspirations? I think that, the student athlete and plus the the parent or whoever's the guardian of that student athlete. I think that 
they need to speak up a little more and just show that, you know, yeah, their son is coming here on a scholarship. And I understand you go to school on a scholarship. Like football is your pri priority, even though, you know, education, of course, is a priority as well. But football is first and you shouldn't do anything to take away from, you know, excelling, you know, at your best, um, especially a violent sport like football where you got to know what your teammates doing. So it's tough to miss practices because if you don't, you can end up, you know, on a stretcher, unfortunately, um, in the middle of a game. But I think if we speak up when we're on these recruiting visits and we start to ask questions and ask them, okay, what are you going to do for me in the off season that's going to help me make sure that I reach success once I leave this university? Uh, what programs do you have? Do you have anything that I can get into as far as internships? Um, am I only allowed to do an internship my senior year? Because um, when I was in school, I didn't do an internship until my last semester and I got off the hook and only did two weeks of an internship. It was supposed to be a whole semester long. So, you know, I really didn't learn anything at all. I didn't have the time to learn anything. But again, as athletes, we still have to take the ownership, you know, and ask those questions long before we get on campus. Yeah, we talk about the parents a lot, but just talk about how important actually are the coaches in this type of process as well, just as far as like, building your future for five years down the line yeah well the, the coaches i think that's that's kind of a tough uh tough point right there because you know the coaches are there to coach you know they're getting paid to coach they're getting paid to win games and run a program so i think that of course they should be open to allowing athletes other avenues to explore and find out more about themselves find out what they like in career paths but i think it should just like every university should have one or a few people that's designated to helping athletes in that area because i don't recall having anyone there that made themselves you know made their presence known to us that they're there to help us post athletics they're there to help us i mean even when it comes to you know mentally um, therapy things like that i think that's stuff that should be you know put in place because the coaches they have a heavy load you know what i'm saying but that still doesn't mitigate the fact that they should also be pushing that for our athletes man i can relate to you so much like, <laughs> this is crazy like i mean and it's crazy because it's like you hear the same stories yeah no matter where you went right. and it's like when are we going to change the narrative of mm -hmm. you know going through the ncaa or wherever you play mm -hmm. um to have a better experience because you're right i know for me personally none of that was ever set up for me you know, thankfully that for me, I had my head on my shoulders. You know, I knew what I wanted to do and stuff like that. But then I had teammates who didn't know what the heck they wanted to do. You know, basketball, basketball, basketball. Right. And so there was never anybody like a therapist around. There was no life coach around. There was nobody there mm -hmm. to mentor or help us push through other than the sport. Mm -hmm. So it's amazing that you brought that up because, I mean, again, like, that's something that a lot of people just don't get, yeah. you know, and it's, it's, it's interesting though, because you talk about therapists and then that comes into the budgeting of the school. So then you got to mm -hmm. look at, okay, you know, how long will it take for HBCUs to get that right. type of treatment before the PWI, before Virginia Tech and things like that. So I think that's definitely something that should be, you know, pushed a lot. Um, a lot of young, I think a lot of young people that are in, um, you know, psychologists, they should be the ones to get involved with these schools because they can relate to these kids. Um, but yeah, I definitely think 
it's something that's so overlooked and people don't understand it until they get on the other side where they have a child that's in school and, and they, you know, find out from them. But yeah, you would think it is something in place for that because they have everything else in place, but you know, it's going to, it's going to take time though. Yeah. yeah. So as far I know you talk a lot about uh, formulating an identity. Um, so what were some of the things that came through your life that you knew that we, you figured out like football was taking over your life basically for the good or the bad? So for me, like I said, um, going back to middle school when I, you know, dealt with a lot of bullying in middle school, um, it was terrible. And it, it had me questioning a lot of things at such a young age, you're talking 11 to 13 years old. I started to question, you know, is my family really my family? Is my father my father? Is my mother my mother? I started to believe that I was adopted because and just being transparent, people would tease me and think I'm from a different country or, or whatever, you know, because of my features or my hair and things like that. So that messed with me a lot. And that's why I really immersed myself in football at a young age. Also, another thing, and I didn't realize this until I actually was writing my book, was that throughout all these years, um, my father, you know, we never lived in the same home. So the majority of the time that I would see him, my brother and I would see him is because of sports. So he'll come to every game for the most part and make that four hour drive. Even when I got in college and he was in Georgia, he'd drive up to a good amount of the games, you know, in Maryland or if we're down in North Carolina. So I saw that as being the magnetic force, you know what I'm saying? That bridge the gap between myself and my father. Then I also saw how my brother stopped playing sports, but even though he wasn't playing, me playing allowed all three of us to form, you know, a better father-son relationship. Relationship. So, of course, you know, not me not knowing it, you know, I just kind of continued to gravitate towards the sport. As I kept going along, it gave me confidence. It allowed me to, I guess, have some type of, you know, known presence on, on campus and things like that. But I never took the identity that was formed on me and tried to use it negatively or be some cocky person and things like that. It just was something that made me feel good. So, you know, once it's taken from you, you start to think, okay, I got all of my friends from football for the most part. Um, you know, maybe even, you know, girlfriends or whatever, they see you playing football. And then you start to think about your relationship with your father and things like that. And, you know, you start to think, okay, is our relationship going to suffer now because I'm not playing? And once I did stop playing, it was a lot of times where we wouldn't talk much. You know, we went from talking multiple times a week when I'm playing to maybe once every two, three weeks, maybe go a month without, you know, picking up the phone or call. So those are the things that, you know, I dealt with as far as, you know, forming an identity um, through sports. And I think that as we're going through this journey to try and reach that highest level or get that scholarship, you just got to be aware of all of the other things that you, you know, the, the characteristics you possess and all the other things that you can do. And also the parents have to know that too because my father actually, you know, he got in an argument with my stepmother when I was in Georgia one time because she told him, you know, maybe he doesn't want to play football, you know, maybe he wants to do something else. And they got in just a heated argument right in front of me. And it just shows that parents, you know, they also have to realize that they need to transition as well once, you know, their child finishes playing. Yeah, that's real. Um, because mentally and emotionally it does take an effect on you um so how did you kind of pull yourself out of that because i know from one moment you kind of were a little depressed and 
just trying to figure out what's next for you. Yeah. So for me, the first thing was just having people around you know what you're going through because I, I've always been the type to keep things in, never really express myself. And a lot of times as, as men, of course, sometimes you're taught, you know, bottle things up, don't show emotions, don't cry, things like that. So once um, my girlfriend at the time, she had knew I was feeling, you know, depressed and things like that. She's the one who actually reached out to my mother. And then once my mother and my brother found out, you know, they um, talked to me about everything that helped push me through it. Um, and then my father, he had got involved, even though it was still kind of like weird because part of me feeling like that was because I'm not talking to my dad as much. And then also finding a mentor, uh, which I actually stumbled upon. And he gave me insight on, you know, books to read, uh, just the, the way to think about failures and, you know, temporary defeats is, you know, what they really are. And that just helped me see that, now, even though you do put your all into something and you don't accomplish it, it doesn't mean that it's the end of the road. Um, especially if you just, you know, I had to just sit and look at, did I give it my all and do I have any regrets? And I don't, I gave it my all. And I just had to know that, you know, there's more in life. I was 23 when I stopped playing. So I'm like, I mean, you got 70 more years, you know what I'm saying? So it's so many other things you can do, but it's just, you know, building that confidence and, spending more time with myself, like meditating or just visualizing things and just thinking is something that really helped me get out of that situation. Nice. Now tell us a bit about your book. Okay. Yeah. So from Cleese to Loafers, it shares my journey from, you know, trying to strive to reach the NFL. And then also it sheds light on the transition phase for athletes, you know, post-athletics and which I believe comes with a lot of struggles mentally and socially. So it gives readers insight into the mind of an athlete. Also, it has ideologies laid out that the reader can take and apply to their life. And it's not just for an athlete. Um, anyone who's in a, a, a phase in their life where they're trying to find out what's next or you know, how to transition from a certain career field that they were in or you know, finding their identity outside of what they've known for years. And so that's what it's about in a nutshell. Did you learn a little bit of more things about yourself while actually writing this book? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, unexpectedly, too. I didn't think I was going to go into it and start writing, and then I started learning stuff along the way. But um, the main thing I learned from it was that, you know, I think once you're doing something for years on end and you have a goal in mind, you don't reach it, or you do reach it and it's prematurely, you start to think, did I waste my time? Was it even worth it? What was the whole purpose of me doing this if I didn't get to the end goal and the end result that I wanted? And for me, I found out that, you know, football's purpose in my mm -hmm. life, among other things, but the main thing was me being able to form a relationship with my father. And then now I also learned that, okay, football brought that, you know, relationship. Um, it brought us closer together in life, but now it's leaving me with the responsibility to make sure that I build upon that and take that even further. So that's what, that, that's what I really learned about myself. And also I learned that another thing that can be therapeutic for a lot of people, especially athletes transitioning or you know, finishing their sport, their playing days, for me, writing was something that was therapeutic. Just putting all my thoughts on paper and then just having to be able to sit back and say, you know, whatever I put down, somebody may judge me, somebody may not, but at the end of the day, there's other people that can relate. And if you could just help you know, one person, you know, that's, that's worth it.
What's some advice you would give to young student athletes who may have graduated or going through the process of playing on a collegiate level? Um, for me, I would, first of all, if you haven't graduated, I would have, you know, you need to make sure your grades are in order, which it sounds cliche. Everyone says it when I was in high school and they would say, I'm like, all right, whatever. I got, you know, good enough grades. I can make it. But I would say definitely academics. Um, I would definitely say make sure that if you really want a scholarship, you have to practice like every day. You have to put the work in when you're practicing with your team. And then on the field, you got to do your best to perform because, you know, a lot of guys now in the situation um, with COVID and things like that, there's some guys that I've seen because I help coach out of high school. They give 50% effort in practice. That translates over to the game. Maybe you give them 75%. And now for guys who are trying to get a scholarship next year, you may not have a season. So you're going to be judged off your previous year and you may not receive a scholarship. So my I, my advice, you know, before anything, is just go hard in the classroom and on the field. And then also, I would say, you know, go on as many visits as you can, even if they're not official visits, you know, even if you're not a top recruit, I would still say to go check out schools, see what they like, find out what programs they offer. Um, and then also, when you're, if you are a kid that's getting recruited and you're around the coaches, find out what the coaches are like, try to get to know them beyond just me and your coach and things like that. So that's what I would say. How can uh, these young guys stay in shape, um, more so physically, but also mentally and emotionally? Because yeah. I know how much it's affecting us all with no sports right. or not being able to play. Right, right. Yeah, so um, well, first of all, physically, I mean, whatever you could do, if you could go outside and run up the street or do push-ups, I mean, that stuff is simple, you know, it kind of kind of speaks for itself. Um, but of course, be safe if you're around other people. But mentally, I would say to try and, especially with this time where you have, you have a lot more time on your hands, I would try and wake up in the morning and try to structure your day a certain way. Because if you get up and you start instantly thinking, oh, I'm not playing football, oh, this sucks, oh, I can't go out with my friends, I can't play this season. I might not get a scholarship. You got to start waking up and thinking about what you do have, even though it is a time where, you know, people may be furloughed. People may not have the income that they had. You still have to think about, okay, what am I grateful for? You know, I woke up, I have a roof over my head, things like that. And then I would try and, you know, implement some type of meditation, um, which is something I started a couple of years ago. And it's something that helps me. It just, you know, positive self-affirmations they make you feel better about yourself so I think structuring your day to start off with what you're grateful for and then also I think just setting up you know time frames for you to find out other things that you're interested in and spend maybe an hour a day looking up some information that you know you're interested in learning about or you know if you want to um, I would also say stay in contact with your teammates and things like that because you know right now a lot of people are isolated and you know, if you're a player who's maybe doing good and you're mentally stable right now, your teammate may not. So I think reaching out to each other and staying in close contact will help. That's some good stuff. That is some good stuff. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. I also heard you're a real estate agent. So how, how did you get into that? So I got into that. So kind of backtracking to when I stopped playing, I was actually working at a dog kennel. Um, which I knew a lady who owned her dog kennel and she told me, oh, you know, come work here. I looked at it as a way to kind of give me some freedom to just do that and then I can go work out 
as I was preparing for the first season um, in the professional indoor football league. So it worked for me. Um, when I stopped playing, I came back and was working at the dog kennel. I hated it. I was like, I'm not doing this. Agree. Like, what am I doing here? You know, picking up at the dogs and whatnot and stuff like that. But she had told me, the owner told me I should get into real estate. And she was, she was a um, Caucasian lady, but she really, you know, she used to call me her son. She really is somebody who had a great heart. And she said, you should think about real estate. So I was like, all right, I thought about it before, never knew how to get into it. And she basically just gave me the steps, you know, go ahead and take the test, do this, that, and the third. So that's how I got started in it. And then for anyone else who's out there who is interested in getting in any type of real estate, because there's so many different aspects, my advice would be to get a mentor uh, within the real estate field. So I had met with a guy who I knew from a family friend, and he kind of showed me the ropes, would take me with him on meetings and things like that. You know, you do a little work for free you know, until you get the experience and the knowledge. So that's how I, I got into real estate. So it's going on over two years now that I've been doing it. And I know you've talked about, you talked about mentors a little bit uh, so far. Just, just tell the people how important is it to just have a mentor, somebody just to talk to in I these times. Yeah, it's real, it's, it's very important. It's very important. Now, one thing I will say though about mentors is like some people may think you need 10 mentors and 15 mentors, but you really need maybe two at the most, you know? Um, and another important thing I say, cause one of my mentors who I met <clears throat> through real estate, like on the, he's an investor. He had bought my grandmother's property and that's how I had met him. And he is a mentor outside of real estate. He's a mentor with you know family because I look at him and I see he has a wife, he has three kids and the way he treats his family, the way he goes about his day, that really, you know, um, has an impact on me. But he's somebody who tells me the truth. He keeps things, you know, 100. He doesn't sugarcoat anything. But also, when you find a mentor, your mentor doesn't have to necessarily be just like you because he's somebody who doesn't watch sports. I don't think he's played sports or anything like that. And where he's still able to pour into my life and help me in ways that maybe somebody who does watch sports all day you know, they may not be able to help me. So I think finding somebody that's a little bit different than you isn't a bad thing. That's good advice. Uh, what can we expect? What's next for Jared Johnson? Um, well, right now, I just started doing the From Cleats to Loafers interview series on my Instagram. And I initially wanted to do that in person and actually go to where the people are, you know, if they're in close proximity and go back to you know, their upbringings or wherever they grew up at their high school and kind of walk with them and interview them at the same time. But with everything, I just, you know, got to do lives, which I really didn't want to do. I was like, man, I'm not trying to get them alive and, and do this. So I had to like kind of break out, you know, with my shell and whatnot. But I'm doing that. Um, I am working on a children's book and it's, it won't be called From Cleats to Loafers, but it'll be, it'll be based around that idea of letting our kids know that there's so many things you can do and not to take away from sports because, you know, when I have kids, my kids most likely going to play sports too. If they are blessed to get a scholarship. You know, I'm not going to tell them they can't do anything, you know, like that. But, and I got that idea from going to a school one day, talking to kids and we had asked them what they want to be. They all said NBA or NFL player. And then we told them, you know, don't write down NBA or NFL. And they had so many other career fields that they wanted to do, but it was just 
you know, surprising that they needed permission to say those things. So this book kind of gives kids the permission to think outside of the box. So I'm working on that. Um, also, I just finished doing a script because I want to turn this topic into a film, a feature film. So I just finished doing a script. Um, had to go back and take some stuff out, uh, fix things up and whatnot. And I have some people that, you know, have came into my life, like, I, I don't know, I guess it was God's work or whatever, but that are kind of in positions where I would be able to send it to, like, as far as production teams and things like that. So that's something I'm very, very passionate about. That's, like, number one, um, what I'm working on, because I feel like this topic is urgent and a lot of people need it. So, yeah, that's, that's what I'm doing. I'm trying to stay productive. Got to. That's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, where can everyone follow you on social media, Twitter, all that good stuff? Yeah, drop the socials, everything. I don't, I don't have a Twitter. I don't have a Twitter. I, I might do one. I don't know, but oh, you got to get a Twitter, man. Twitter's where it's at. What's the point of Twitter? I mean, you really can't post pictures unless I'm wrong. <laughs> so I just always thought it was more so people just want to rant all day and just tweet, 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 tweet. I, I guess. No, so I was like, I'm not, I don't really know if I want to do all that. <laughs> but I was thinking about it yesterday. I actually was like, maybe I should get Twitter. I don't know. But um, on Instagram, that's what I use like 99% of the time. And my Instagram is just Jared, J-A-R-E-D, Johnston, J-O-H-N-S-T-O-N, one of one. That's my Instagram. And then my website is jared-johnston.com. So, and then also for um, the book from Cleese the Loafers, uh, you beat me <laughs> Um, that's on Amazon. So you can find it on Amazon and just search from Cleese to Loafers. There's also a link in my uh, Instagram profile that goes there as well. Nice, nice. Any promo codes you got? <laughs> I, I, I don't, no I don't. promo codes? Not yet? <laughs> I'll, work, I'll work on that. I'll work on that. I'll add it to the list of the things uh, I'm working on. Just for y'all. <laughs> uh, Jared, thank you for stopping by and talking to us about everything uh definitely gonna check out that book seems mm -hmm. like a good book mm -hmm. and um keep doing big things man keep doing big things yeah thanks thanks i appreciate it being the first guest on y'all show i was watching y'all um i believe it was your first episode on youtube yesterday okay. i was driving like an hour away so i was listening to it and everything so i, I you know i'm happy to be the first guest definitely wish oh, y'all yeah, this is gonna go down to history yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And we're very appreciative of you um, just sharing your incredible story and Thanks. just hopefully that, you know, the goal for us mm -hmm. is to inspire, continue yeah. to inspire just like you want to. And hopefully someone comes across this and mm -hmm. maybe have been through the same situations that you and I both have faced as a collegiate student athlete. So, mm -hmm. yeah, thank you yeah. so much for sharing your story. Definitely. I appreciate it. Y'all take care. All right. Thanks. See you. All right.